0: The mission of the TB Roy Jefferson Medical Society is to improve the health and wellness, access to care, academic and career opportunities, and the quality of life for underserved populations through the provision of healthcare, education, career exposure, and youth development services. We focus on elevating the professional success of our members, through information, education, and networking opportunities. Our vision is to be recognized as the authority and trusted voice leading resources for health and wellness of the underserved in Palm Beach County and to be the preeminent advocate fostering the advancement of minority health professionals. Welcome to the T. Leroy Jefferson Medical Society podcast Helping the Helpers. Welcome to today's topic. We're looking at anxiety and depression in medical professionals. My name is Dr. Debbie. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Florida, and I have the opportunity to be your host today. We have four incredible professionals throughout the mental health profession, and we're going to give them an opportunity to give us some encouragement, to give us some empowerment and to give us some time just to pour back into ourselves. So our first guest with us today is Mr. Markin Balami. He is of Bedrock Counseling. And so Markin, can you tell us a little bit about your specialty?
1: All right, yes, my specialty is EMDI therapy, which is definitely trauma related. I'm an EMDR-trained therapist, an EMDR-certified therapist, and also a consultant, where I consult with other licensed clinicians as well that are trying to improve on their craft of EMDR therapy. And I just pretty much love everything that's involved and tells about trauma, whether that's uh the brain and body connection, whether that's someone wanting uh to... To have more language of what's going, inter- what's happening internally within within their bodies, within their minds. So everything about trauma is definitely something that that grabs my attention, and of course, uh, it can show up as other things as far as anxiety, depression. But I think a majority of the mental health uh, diagnoses, m- mental health illnesses, are somewhat somewhat have a trauma connection to them on some shape, form, or fashion.
0: And Markin, how many years have you been practicing, and why did you decide to go into this area?
1: Practicing for about eight years uh, as a licensed mental health clinician, Uh, and the reason I chose this area of practice is because it's kind of personal to me. Uh, I'm someone who's I've battled a lot of trauma growing up, from childhood to adulthood. Uh, In my early twenties, had really bad PTSD. Uh, I I was robbed at gunpoint. And um, I remember years later coming into this field and starting to learn as a therapist, what are the symptoms of PTSD, PTSD, acute stress disorder, and other trauma-related disorders. And I started saying, wow, I have a lot of these symptoms. And that started a deep dive in more conversations with other clinicians and eventually going to therapy for myself and learning how to um, notice more what's going interna- what's happening internally in my body, learning how to calm my nervous system, learning what are intrusive thoughts, what are flashbacks, why do I always feel safe, where are all these negative um, beliefs coming from, and and just learning to feel safe in my own body and also in my surroundings. And the thing that did it for me was going to EMDR therapist. And once after a couple of sessions, I saw how quickly and effective it was I said, I definitely want to get trained in that. So that's what really started me on this journey of becoming a trauma therapist. Number one, it was kind of personal for me, but number two, seeing the quick results of my clients, it just, it just brought a sense of purpose to me. So that's something that I'm really passionate about.
0: Very nice to learn a little bit more about your passion and your purpose around this area. I wonder, from your culture, though, what, what really brings you joy?
1: That's a great question. From my culture, what brings me joy? Uh, I think that's a two-part question for me, because um, although I grew up in the African-American context, my ethnicity, probably butchering this word, word but my ethnic background is first-generation Haitian-American. Uh, and... They're two completely different cultures. I start with the Haitian American background, to where mental health is never discussed. It's always layered with a sense of mysticism or someone's just completely out of their mind. Uh, it, so it's never discussed as far as I'm functioning day to day, but there are still some microaggressions that I'm battling that are really um, weighing me down or stressors in my life that. After a while, I'm really am not handling well. There's never been that type of conversation, and from my Haitian background, it's always been if someone's completely out of their mind, it's either they were born that way or maybe someone went put a, a spell on them and went to the witch doctor. But it was never contextualized in a way to where you know what? So and so's grandmother used to act this way, and I saw the same uh, issues in, the, in their in their child and also in their grandchild. where these things were hereditary and and they were within the bloodline so there were never those type of discussions it was always either you're crazy uh excuse me for using that term but i'm just using that example they would use the term either you're crazy or someone put a spell on you but as time went on uh i realized that wow the same way there's a stigma with mental health in the african-american community there's the same thing in the caribbean community as well from my context and it was all—it was looked at, it was viewed as being weak, and the discussions were never really spoken. And if someone did have a legitimate mental health issue, they just kept it quiet. They didn't want people to know. It came with a certain level of shame, and uh, and I think that's one of my goals as a therapist is also is to destigmatize mental health in general, whether it's from my Haitian American background or from the African American context. I think the more we have the conversation, the more we'll begin to normalize mental health. Uh, Even me, for example, I see it, I still see a therapist just to make sure I'm okay. Because in my field, there's just a high level of burnout. And sometimes I'll put it in my everyday language. If someone's trying to meet with me, I say, you know what? I can't do that day because I got to meet with my therapist. I purposely do that because I'm trying to normalize like, you don't always have to be in crisis to go to therapy. Uh, You know, we don't take our cars to the mechanic. Only when it's broken down, if you need an oil change, if it's time to make sure your fluids are regulated or your tire pressure needs a little adjustment, we'll take our cars to to the mechanic shop. It's not always because we need a new engine, a new transmission, or it's just not starting. So I I always try to encourage that mental health should be looked upon as preventative so that uh, we won't have to get to a state of crisis if, if we do a lot of work on the front end for the preventative care. I, and I think that's something that could be a, a lot of very beneficial to um, people in the medical field. It's it's a type of, it's a profession where there's high burnout because you're a first responder and making sure that you're okay, you, you're, you're, you're centered, you feel a sense of homeostasis in your nervous system, the way you're calm, cool and collected, and you feel like you have everything under control. I think it's much needed in, in the field of first responders, whether that be mental health, um, medical medical um, doctors, whether that be um, law enforcement, firefighters, we all need to make sure that we're doing these daily mental health check-ins. And I would say the second part of that question, what brings me joy is seeing people, my people from the African American context, normalize the conversation of mental health and reach out uh, I never really say this, but whenever I get a call for a consultation and it's either an African-American man or an African-American woman or even someone of Haitian descent on the phone and they're inquiring about mental health, I always, you know, I always think in the back of my mind, whether they come to me or not, I'm excited because they're inquiring about mental health. So that I feel like the, the conversation has definitely started. And I encourage them, even if they don't want to see me necessarily for therapy, I, I ask them, how can I be a bridge? Can I, refer, can I refer you to someone else? I'll even give them other directories because I'm encouraging them to not give up on their search for a mental health therapist that they could really connect with. So it brings me joy seeing people who look like me, talk like me, and have somewhat of a, um, uh, a, a court, cultural connection with me uh, inquire about their own mental health and, and seem to be passionate about getting help.
0: So nice to hear all of the things that bring you joy. And, you know, the, the last few years feels like joy has been far from many of the clients that we serve and even professionals. What have you seen in this space?
1: Okay, that's a great question regarding COVID, how you, you mentioned the last few years. Uh, it feels like joy for many. Um, the clients we serve, uh, there haven't been much of that in this profession. Uh, I would say in this space, I could speak for mental health clinicians. COVID was like a gift and a curse for a lot of therapists, where there was this huge influx of a lot of new clientele. So therapists were like, yay, more business, but didn't realize how, be careful what you ask for. It could be overwhelming. So there was high levels of burnout. I saw it in the medical profession, just, you know, just seeing on the news how there were high COVID numbers, and even, even people coming to therapy because they already had mental health, uh, whether that be illnesses or just mental health things that they were grappling and, and functioning with on a day-to-day basis, But but when you add on top of that being quarantined, it exacerbated those mental health issues to where they were getting worse, so there were high levels of people, high numbers of people who wanted to who needed help and they were reaching out. And I noticed a lot of therapists were experiencing burnout at a high rate, but they were still operating at level because they felt a sense of entitlement to their clients. You know, every great therapist, if they love what they're doing, they don't want to abandon their clients. And it's kind of in our um, code of ethics anyway, we shouldn't abandon our clients. But Debbie, there's this sense of responsibility. I need to give my client the best version of me but it's hard to do that when you're running on fumes, when you're running on empty. And, and I saw high numbers of that to where uh, what, what I did for myself and I encourage other therapists to do was really focus on self-care for yourself and also for your clients, regardless of what they're coming to therapy for. Because if you're not taking care of your basic essentials, um, your basic necessities, there won't be much of you to give to your clients and there won't be much of your clients um, to be really engaged in therapy so i saw a really big push not only for the conversation of mental health but also for self care for the for the clients and also for the therapists so the influx of new clientele was not as um meaningful as it would have been because it just seemed very over overwhelming on 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 all ends so i think that's what i saw in this space to where a therapist had to take a step back reflect take a deep breath and really I, and I also saw a lot of therapists change their entire business structure and say, "You know what? Maybe having these having high number of clients is not the type of business structure that I would like for my 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 private practice." I thought it was because I was counting dollar figures, but when I felt the impact of that and and the negative effects it had on my mental health, I, I realized this is not what I wanted at all. And and I saw a lot of clients, a lot of people coming into therapy. Uh, they were very open to the conversation. It's it almost seemed like twenty twenty brought in this great wave of people who were curious about mental health, and I I thought that was amazing. The conversation got started. Um, it, granted, it took something as uh, detriment as COVID in the pandemic to really start this conversation, but I think it was a, it was a healthy wave to have. That have COVID start these natural organic conversations about mental health. So I think this is something that's still ongoing, to where people are continuing the mental health conversation. And I also felt like even in the African American community, it became more destigmatized because the conversations were becoming a lot more where people. It almost it almost seemed like they became a little trendy where people were inquiring about their mental health. And regardless of the motivation behind it, I was just happy to see the conversation. Uh, moving forward.
0: And Markin, okay. how do you make time for joy? What do you recommend for medical professionals?
1: Okay. That's a good question. How do I make time for joy? And what do I recommend for me- medical professionals? I think it always starts with, um, when you start, you have to start taking care of yourself first. I know for me, the way I make time for joy is I, I, me and my family, we, we love to travel, um, we, we love to um, exercise, we love to, um, whether it's a Netflix night, go out, do things together as a family, or for me personally, it's just find, find time for myself. Something I started one day a week, I turn off all electronics, um, no telephone, no cell phone, no internet, no iPad. I I won't lie. When I first started, I felt like I was about to lose my mind because I was like, ah, oh, I'm missing out on the world. What's going on?" But over time, it became very healthy to just shut everything off and to just really think and reflect. Something I always encourage my clients to do when it terrifies them: sit still in a quiet room for five to ten minutes, and whatever comes to mind, journal about it afterwards. And you'll be surprised how something that simple is so terrifying. So I find time to, for solitude to reflect. Um, to do a little bit of self-assessment to get away um, and to travel and to enjoy the things I used to do, whether that's sports, whether that's things of arts and culture. Um, I I, I try to find time to make for that. And I would encourage medical professionals to do the same. One One of the symptoms of depression is you lose interest in the things you used to enjoy. So if you find yourself losing interest in the things that you used to enjoy, Really do a self-assessment of where you're at emotionally because it could it could be that you're overwhelmed and you're just running on fumes and you don't even realize it. So make it a habit of, of, of parsing out a little bit of time every week to enjoy the things uh, you enjoy, whether it's just reading a good book, going to your favorite coffee shop, um, whether it's, you know what, essential oils, um, bubble bath, getting together with good friends once a month. Uh, whether it's, you know what, let me try a new, a new hobby, paint night, a new activity. Go back to making time for yourself. And that will require you saying, number one, telling some people no, being a little selfish at first, but that's okay. It's needed because if you don't, like I said earlier, if you don't make time for yourself, then there won't be much of you to go around. Um, so saying no is another, uh, another great one because being in the medical field, you're already working long hours. So by the time you get home, you have to physically recover, and by the after you've done that, now other people want want a piece of you. Whether that be whether that be family members, whether that be friends, other responsibilities, and learning to say no and learning to space your schedule out. Don't try to cram everything in in one week. Do not try to be Superman. Do not try to be Superwoman. Um, take breaks, and don't always look at slowing down it. The only time to slow down is when you're going on vacation. It could be a daily rhythm in your life. It could look like, you know what? Um, I'm going to shut everything down at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Um, but of course, if you're in the medical field, I know the days go, run long, but when you're off, find those moments where you can just slow down and say, you know what? I'm going to have a me day where I do absolutely nothing and feeling very unapologetic about that. So that's what I would encourage medical professionals to do.
0: Uh, That's very interesting. You know, I think about your background in EMDR, and I'm wondering how does joy and EMDR intersect? How can EMDR be helpful in this space?
1: Hmm. I've never heard this question. How does joy and EMDR intersect, and how can EMDR be helpful in this space? Hmm. I've never heard it worded like that. Uh, I, I think. How joy stems from EMDR is that um, I have when I when someone comes to therapy with all of their trauma, they have all of these maladaptive thoughts, irrational beliefs, negative beliefs, um, a lot of self-loathing. And when you can work through that with EMDR with the help of the bilateral stimulation and start to bring the brain back to a place to how it w- once functioned before the trauma there becomes a sense of, you gain a sense of joy because now there's a lot of mental clarity. You see the world differently. Um, how you think you were viewed by the world uh, is, is different. And now there's more language for you to uh, attach to what, what was once the, a lot of internal chaos within you. And now there be, there's this greater sense of purpose, greater sense of resolve of what you want in the world and, uh, what you expect from others and 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 how you plan on moving forward and i think joy be- joy becomes a journey you find that as as you're moving forward and as you're healing i don't think it's just this one you know you're done with the emdr work and then you just find joy but i think it's more so discovered uh almost like you're on this journey of uh of becoming a better version of yourself and within that journey i think joy is discovered so i know That's a tough question because it's going to look different for everyone. It won't look the same across the board, but I think you'll get a sense of that joy and fulfillment as you're doing the trauma work and you're healing and you're starting to feel more relief every time you leave a a session with your EMDR therapist. Last one, we
0: really want to make it plain and clear. So what is EMDR and how does this all work? How does it come together?
1: It stands for this long word called eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, started by Francine Shapiro in the early 1990s. She's a licensed clinician, and it, it started with her moving her eyes laterally when she was dealing with a lot of stress in her life, and she noticed how much relief she would feel when she would do that, which so happens to be the same thing that happens to us when we're in REM sleep. Our eyes, we, we experience rapid eye movement because that's the brain's way of regulating a lot of the stresses within the body, but when trauma occurs, you know the 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 mind goes into fight, flee, freeze, and this new one that a lot of therapists have called fawning, which is where we get a lot of our people pleasing, which is a trauma response. Uh, but um, but EMDR before I even get into the brain science part, EMDR is evidence based, and what that means basically, you know, it's been it's been vetted by a lot of the top uh, counseling institutions, the APA a uh, a a lot of a lot of the major um entities within the mental health field uh and it's been around for over thirty plus years and you and it's been used pretty much with all diagnoses but as you get into the more severe ones and the ones that deal with a lot of mental illness such as mood and personality disorders and where you where you it encompasses a lot of dissociation a lot of psychotic thinking, you would need a lot of consultation and sometimes yeah uh, you may you might have difficulty doing emdr if someone's not really in their right state of mind but for the most part for most diagnoses emdr is highly effective whether that whether that be anxiety depression uh what whatever the case may be but emdr is a great tool that helps the brain to recover after a traumatic episode cuz when someone experiences trauma um, the reptilian brain, which is the lower base part of the brain, the back of the neck, it goes into overdrive. The prefrontal cortex goes offline, and then we have in the middle brain uh, the 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 limbic system. In there is called the amygdala, which goes off like a smoke detector, saying danger, danger, alert, alert, uh, and that never shuts off. So imagine having a, a traumatic experience at the age of eight, and that that danger system from your amygdala stays on high alert all into your twenties and thirties and you're always tense, you're always nervous, you always feel unsafe, you always have these negative beliefs, which are all trauma symptoms from that initial trauma. And EMDR comes in with the help of something called bilateral stimulation with through the eye movements uh, to help regulate the left and right side of the brain to learn to communicate again, to get those parts of the brain that have been in overdrive overdrive and have shut down because of due to trauma it helps them all to regulate and to start working again. And your trauma, so think of your traumatic experiences as one big Thanksgiving dinner. Each EMDR session is like you're taking one spoonful of that big meal until we slowly chip away at at all of it without it feeling so overwhelmed and intense. And lastly, EMDR is opposite from traditional talk therapy, because traditional talk therapy is top down, which is Cognitive, emotion, som- emotion, and somatic. Cognitive, you know, you come in, you're thinking, you're telling details about your experience. It, might, it may evoke some emotions. And last, and you hardly ever feel any somatic symptoms from, from that conversation. Whereas EMDR is bottom-up approach, where the first thing you feel is the somatic effects of it. You feel it in your body, because that's where the trauma is stored, it's stored of your nervous system. And secondly, it evokes emotions. And thirdly, there's very little thinking involved. A lot of it, because you know, the trauma has to be broken up from the nervous system first, and the thinking that's involved on the back end is just your mind reprocessing a lot of the negative thinking, um, which which is caused by bilateral stimulation. And bilateral stimulation can be done a lot of ways. Although the the name it started off with eye movement, you could do it with following a light bar. Uh, you could do it by tapping butterfly hugs, tapping each shoulder. You could do it by tapping each knee. You could do it by holding on the tappers. They vibrate left hand, right hand, audio. If I had headphones on and I'm hearing a sound in my left ear and right ear, all of those entities, all of those examples will activate the bilateral stimulation to get the left and right hemisphere of the brain communicating again to, to help it to re- regulate the, a lot of the traumatic symptoms uh, that, that you experience from, from your traumatic, from your traumatic um, triggers. Uh, so I hope that answered it. Sorry for being a little long winded, but that was a good question. That was a good question. Thank you.
0: That ends the questions for Markin. We'll move on to Dr. Harlene Hutchinson. Welcome, Dr. Hutchinson. We're so excited to have you here today to highlight your work in social and emotional wellness. So please tell us about your
2: specialty. So specialize in infinite early childhood mental health, which means that I specialize in working with young children birth to five and their caregiver. This specialty is also unique and important in the, the fact that we know young children's brain are developing at a really alarmingly fast rate. So in doing so, I work with their caregivers to help them understand how their interaction with their children can be healing when they present with a wide range of issues at an early age, when we see children in the medical practice, we see that they're coming in with all different um, mental health issues, social emotional issues. And sometimes it's really in, important for us to recognize how those issues impact their social development and how it also impact their brain development.
0: How many years have you been practicing and why did you decide to go into this area of our field?
2: That's a very um, good question to ask. I've been practicing um for over 20 years working with young children from diverse cultures and backgrounds. And actually, I decided to go into this field because I started off my career as a public health educator back in New York, and then I transitioned into social work once I relocated to Florida. And doing those work experiences, working with families from diverse social cultures, especially our BIPOC families, I realized that young children at an early age were presented with so many challenges, so many social issues. And they were being given mental health diagnosis and medication as young as two years old and that was very um, alarming to me as a professional and um, that really bothered me because the science of neurodevelopment have advanced so much as it relates to young children and how they function then as i began to notice the increased rates of young children also being expelled from preschool due to challenging behaviors and other issues I decided to return to school to pursue my doctorate um, with a specialization in infant and early childhood mental health just to be able to provide the caregivers with that sense of hope and the parents that, you know, we really need to look behind the waterline when um, they're being seen in physician's office or they're being seen by professionals who are actually just looking at the at the, at the naked behavior and looking beneath the waterline just to understand what's driving those behaviors, especially behaviors in our BIPOC children. You see a lot of our BIPOC children are exposed to different things at an early age, and we really need to be thinking and wondering what is driving this behavior and and thinking about how do I use not just signs, but how do I use the the data and the science of brain development to better understand young children?
0: What a meaningful journey, Dr. Hutchinson. Uh, Can you clarify, what is infant mental health? and how does this show up for medical professionals?
2: Thanks for asking that, because many professionals, when they hear the term infant mental health, they automatically imagine and wonder, what is that like to have a baby in therapy, right? (laughs) But infant mental health really is about how well a child develops socially and emotionally from birth to three. So the key to preventing and treating mental health problems in young children is to take an approach by an informed mental health principles right, and practices. Because this approach also supports relationship health by guiding development of healthy social-emotional um, problems and behaviors within the context of caregiving And relationship. In a nutshell, what that means is when young children come to you, they're really struggling with social-emotional challenges. And how those social-emotional challenges, if they're not addressed within the context of the parent-child relationship, how they lead to mental issues in the early school age.
0: What does anxiety and depression look like in infant mental health?
2: we think of anxiety in young children, these, are, these symptoms basically can manifest as, as um, stomach aches, headaches, frequent temper tantrums, constant worry, just asking the same question repeatedly, repeatedly from their parents, right? And in babies, we see anxiety presentation as eczema or reflux. So we really want to try to rule out the medical issues first. Because it's also very important to understand that young children develop in context of relationship. So if parents are stressed, their environment becomes too stressful. So they often um, absorb these stresses within themselves, which also manifests as anxiety for little children. So when we see these children in our practice and they're coming to us and mom or the caregivers complaining, this is what's going on with the behaviors. We ask, we assess, "What's, what's changed in the home? I want you to pause for a minute and think what's different. We also need to keep in mind that normative fears also and anxiety peaks at about three years old. So understanding that young children's emotional social capacities are also developed concurrently with their physical, cognitive, and verbal capacity also is the foundation that is also necessary in identify atypical and an impairing anxiety disorder in young children. So what, what we mean by that is that we want to be sure to recognize how this may be limiting the young child's ability to participate in developmentally expected activities or routine, or it may be telling uh, or how it may be limiting their ability to, to um, develop new skills. When we think of depression in terms of depression um, in young children, we need to understand that it is characterized by observable behaviors rather than the child's direct expression. We really, um, when we work with young babies and young children. They're not going to say, mommy, I feel sad or I feel worried. We have to look at their behaviors and also understand what their internal distress is. Um, because when we see the person, mood, it may present as sad facial expression, tearfulness that are actually um, persistent at times or intense and pervasive across um, settings and relationship. When we think about settings, we're thinking about school, we're thinking about at home with different caregivers. And also when they're they, they're depressed and they, they present with irritability, right? These may present a, these, this is what you see in your practice. Parents are complaining severe tantrums in school and at home, right? And and what we also know that is that um, young children who are actually depressed, they show greater self-harm and tantrum behaviors such as self-biting and hitting. And these are the behaviors that you see in the preschool environment. So you have to be be assessing and and wondering and thinking about the frequency the duration and how is it impairing their ability to participate in normal, typical daily routine functioning within their school environment and within their home environment.
0: I think it's so important to talk about early childhood, to recognize adverse childhood experiences and resiliency. So... How can medical professionals focus on relationships to help improve their well-being?
2: Good question. You know, as a medical professional, we come to this field. We come to do our best, and, and we come to help the families that, and their caregivers that we work with. But sometimes we forget about ourselves. Like, um, you know, we can't pour from a empty cup. So as a medical professional, you really can start by learning how to pause and slow down. You know, you guys are really doing a great job pouring from that cup daily by filling the cups of the parents that you serve. But, you know, there's also a saying you can't pour from an empty cup, which means in doing the work that you do, slow down. Try to get to know the little ones and their parents just by extending that listening here. It goes a long way. And um, that also sets the stage for relationship building because relationship yields at all levels. We can also begin to um, engage parents more in conversation because our system is so designed in such a way that is so driven by insurance, is so driven by um, this mentality, we need to, 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 to go, 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 that we don't take those times to actually focus on those relationships, right? And have more conversation regarding their concerns. And if, and, and if they suspect something, it becomes equally important to also refer these children to early intervention services. Because we want to make sure that we're really integrating services at a critical time when we have the opportunity to change those trajectory for young children's well-being and early intervention also goes a very long way because we know that babies can wait so we have that critical window period of the first thousand days to ensure that they're getting their own emotional needs met um, to mitigate all the mental illness that they're presenting with before they get to that elementary school year but in order for you to do the job that you do and do it successfully, you really need to pause and slow down and, and really be filling your cup each day because working with little ones is very complex, it's very draining. And it's also very emotionally draining It's in a sense that it's rewarding. But many medical professions also parents themselves and seeing that some of those kids, their own emotional issues shows up in those relationships. So it's taking time to pause and reflect in those relationships. I think that um, that's a good way of having medical profession being able to fill their cup daily. Just take and not have that and not be left with guilt. Oh my God, I lost time because I wasn't able to finish this. Think about the relationship that you're building, touching one relationship, healing one patient at a time. It also gives you that reciprocal approach where you're also doing your internal healing, also with knowing that I've done the very best I can. Because I sat back and I listened to that parent or I listened to that caregiver.
0: That concludes the questions for Dr. Hutchinson. Moving on to Dr. Jasmine Duval. Welcome, Dr. Duval. It's so wonderful to have you share some wisdom with us on this podcast today. Can you tell us a little bit about your specialty?
3: Um, So my name is Dr. Jasmine Duvall. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Florida, Um, and my specialty includes working with teens and adults um, dealing with mood disorders, such as uh, major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, um, and also anxiety disorders, such as generalized anxiety, social anxiety, and panic disorder.
0: How many years have you been practicing and why did you decide to go into this field?
3: Um, So I have been conducting therapy throughout South Florida and Central Florida for about 13 years, but I have been practicing as a licensed psychologist for the last six years now. Um, Initially, um, I decided to go into this field to uh, work with just a variety of individuals, to help help them see themselves more clearly. Um, I enjoy having, um, allowing others to have a greater understanding of their self um, and feel more equipped to make the changes they're wanting to see in their lives.
0: We wanna know what is happiness
3: to you? So that is a great question. So um, I use a variety of um, theories and modalities in psychotherapy, but I really um, love using reality therapy. And from that lens, I would say that happiness is about being able to meet all of your needs in healthy ways, having a sense of balance, um, and really living a life that aligns with your value system. Um, So, you know, those basic needs that I really encourage my clients, myself, Um, To meet are those needs for love and belonging, for freedom, um, for fun, for power and survival. So I feel like happiness is that intersection of meeting all of those needs without taking away from the others. Um, Personally, um, I really enjoy time with my family. I have a husband and two young children. Um, so that is very rewarding for me. I feel really blessed in that area, but I also love time for just me happiness. I'm simple Is some good jazz music and a cup of coffee. That's happiness to me and being able to just breathe and live in the moment without thinking so far in the future. Um, just taking in the moment and the surroundings.
0: Well, so glad to learn a little bit more about you. Um, Can you take a moment to talk about what is the difference in your expert opinion between anxiety and depression and how do they present?
3: Okay, great question. So um, anxiety and depression are oftentimes used interchangeably. And I think because a lot of times you see the two conditions together co-occurring. but they're very, very different. And while someone with depression can deal with anxiety and someone with primarily an anxiety disorder can deal with depression sometimes, it is important for um, providers and for the individual to know which condition may be at the forefront. And sometimes those conditions can occur together. But anxiety is Somewhat, this general apprehension about what's going to happen or could possibly happen in the future. Um, So, of course, we all deal with anxiety from time to time, but anxiety disorder is characterized by um, a pervasive sense of worry or nervousness, um, being overwhelmed by fear, being cranky or on edge. Sometimes um, when dealing with anxiety, you can be sweaty or shaky or feel like you're out of control. Um, an anxiety disorder can sometimes include anxiety attacks or even panic attacks, um, which include these moments that are very can be very scary. Sometimes they are um, confused with a heart attack because of the physical symptoms of anxiety, um, such as heart palpitations or chest pain or nausea. Um, But anxiety at the core is a a pervasive sense of dread or nervousness. Um, While depression is primarily characterized by sadness, but depression is not just sadness um, because we all experience sadness from time to time. But depression is kind of this ongoing sense of um, sadness or sometimes feeling numb um, or gray, um, a sense of hopelessness, low energy, dwelling on the negative aspect of things. Um, sometimes people with depression may have suicidal thoughts. Um, and also anxiousness can be a part of depression, um, a lack of energy, a loss of interest in things you once enjoyed. Depression can impact your sleeping and your eating patterns, um, sometimes eating more than usual or less than usual, which may lead to um, weight gain or weight loss, um, sleeping too little or too much, um, trouble thinking or concentrating, um, but that that is basically depression. So at the, the difference between the two um, basically has to do with the symptoms, um, but how they are related. So If you take someone who's dealing with chronic anxiety, a lot of times after a period of intense anxiety or an anxiety attack, um, that person may feel a sense of depression or hopelessness about the future and and their ability to navigate anxiety in the future or um, sadness about how to avoid a panic attack in the future. Um, And then someone dealing with depression as the primary condition may have a sense of fear, anxiousness about their future, how the depression is going to play out for them, um, how the depression will impact their functioning or their life goals.
0: What does intervention look like?
3: Intervention for depression anxiety should definitely be tailored to the individual person, but research shows that um, the most successful intervention is a combination of psychotherapy and medication if needed. Um, and I know that a lot of people may have some concerns about using a psychotropic medication. And it is definitely something I encourage um, those dealing with depression, anxiety to talk with a provider that they trust, um, but Intervention from a psychological perspective looks like um, really identifying those thoughts and behaviors that are not helpful or are problematic, working to restructure those thoughts, um, committing to actions that align with your own personal life values. Um, specifically for anxiety, it may look like Um, challenging those thoughts, those fears by setting up little experiments with a provider to see how um, the feared outcome actually compares to the reality. Because a lot of times anxiety leads to avoidance, avoiding different experiences, avoiding life, um, avoiding others. And intervention may look like kind of getting those tools to manage the anxiety and taking a step, seeing what um, those experiences actually look like using the tools provided in therapy. Um, so intervention um, for most people may look like psychotherapy or talk therapy and medication if needed. If the symptoms are severe, where you're, it's, they're impacting the daily life, Um, And medication does not always have to be long-term. Sometimes people may use medication until they're better able to control those symptoms on their own um, and then continue in psychotherapy. So um, intervention is definitely personalized and should be customized to the individual.
0: Right. I think we've had an opportunity to really get to know you and your area of practice. What would you say are your top three actions that medical professionals can focus on to increase a sense of happiness for themselves?
3: So that is a great question. Um, What I would like to do is to introduce medical professionals to the three C's of stress management, because I believe strongly overall, happiness comes from a sense of being able to manage and navigate the challenges that life throws at us So those three C's of stress management um, are control, cohesion, and connection. And control really focuses on looking at all of those things happening around you and in your life that you can actually control, such as getting proper sleep, eating well, um, experiencing enjoyable activities, taking care of yourself. Um, going to your own medical appointments to make sure you're okay, using self-care, being able to schedule things on your calendar that bring a sense of joy. Um, Cohesion really focuses on the narrative that we are telling ourselves about our life. So why are you doing what you do? How does what you do align with your values? How do you want to take up space in the world um, with cohesion, you may pull in your spirituality. Um, what is important to you? How, how does your work from day to day help you to walk in a direction that you have for your life? Um, and connection, the last C, is about connecting with other people. A lot of times medical professionals are so busy and they find themselves always in caregiving roles um, I think it's important to take time to connect with others who get to pour back into you, with others who um, may understand personally what you're going through. Um, we don't want to find ourselves on an island. So it's important to make time to um, have meaningful relationships.
0: That concludes the questions for Dr. Jasmine Duval. Moving on to Dr. Jessette Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gissette Smith. We are so happy to have you on. And we'd love
4: to start with a little bit um, around your specialty. My specialty, I am a licensed clinical psychologist um, specializing in uh, diagnosing psychiatric conditions and working with psychiatric conditions, um, mostly depression, anxiety, addiction, and trauma-related disorders. Uh, one of my biggest specialties at this moment is psychological assessment. So I assess personality and functioning, intellectual abilities, academic functioning, and also attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, just to name a few. But that's one of um, my passions, really, is I love psychological assessment and how it can provide assistance for kids in the school system and extra support that they need.
0: And how many years have you been practicing and why did you decide
4: to go into this area of the field? So how long have I been practicing? So I feel like it's funny because I feel like I've been a mental health professional all my life, but I know that's not true. But so I've been officially practicing in the mental health field for a total of 13 years. So I've been working as a licensed clinical psychologist for the past six years. And then before that, I was working as a licensed mental health counselor. And um, the other part of the question, how did I decide to go into this field? it's funny, like when I think back on it, I don't think there was like a dis, a distinct moment that I decided to to say, you know, I want to be in the mental health field. But I think back and I remember in um, like high school, ninth grade, I used to kind of write this little column. And it was like an advice column. And at that point in time, I knew I liked helping people. It probably was super unethical because I'm a ninth grader giving people, you know, advice and, and what have you. But it was funny, it was harmless, but I did, I did find out that I liked working with people and speaking with people and helping where I could. Um, but there was a distinct moment when I decided that I wanted to be a psychologist. So as I was practicing in the mental health field, I realized that I to, actually to prevent my own burnout, I wanted to kind of mix up the, the different things that I was doing. So while I loved doing therapy, I also loved writing reports, I loved data. I loved research. So that's why I went back and decided to, um, to get my doctorate so that I can do assessments.
0: You know, Dr. Smith, sometimes we're with clients and we're always in tune with really what makes them smile. But we want to give you this time just to share what makes you smile, Dr. Smith.
4: Wow. I like that question. So I love traveling. I love traveling to new places. I try to take a couple of mini vacations um, each year and, and at least one big vacation per year because I think that it's really important to unplug and just kind of be in the world see things that I haven't seen before but what really makes me smile is taking my children to new and fun places and and seeing how they respond so not only me getting to you know experience something new but witnessing somebody else and you know seeing through things through through their eyes makes me smile. Well, I
0: thank you for sharing just a little bit more about yourself. You know, the level of happiness and joy has really been pushed by the pandemic, especially for our medical professionals who have given so much.
4: Can you share about the reality of burnout? That's a, a really good question. So the reality of burnout. So it's interesting because there's not a specific agreed upon really definition of burnout. It's not included in the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that mental health professionals use for diagnosing. However, um, there's constantly studies focusing on burnout. And one thing that I can say about the reality of burnout and especially how it relates to the medical field is burnout is, is present in the medical field on a regular basis, right? So now kind of layer on the pandemic and we can all imagine how burnout increased within medical professionals. So we have medical professionals, um, they're in a unique situation. So they are continuing to provide medical services and care to their patients. And they're simultaneously coping with their own difficulties caused by the pandemic. So while this is always true for medical professionals, they're always kind of juggling their own personal life and the responsibilities that they have. The pandemic put an extra strain on all hospital systems. There was like shortages in staff. So things that they might have been doing to for self-care, maybe weren't they weren't able to do anymore. So they weren't able to maybe take as many days off. They weren't able to um, they might have been working longer hours. And then layered on top of that, they're constantly being, being um, on the front lines in the front row of other people's trauma. So they're experiencing what's called secondary trauma, uh, vicarious trauma, just kind of being in that area and witnessing people and being their support as they're you know losing loved ones and um, coping with this, the significant illnesses and the after effects. What are the signs of burnout and? what helps? Everybody's different. So I'll start with saying that everybody is definitely different with how they handle stress. But some of the things that we do commonly see, we see an increase in irritability. So a person that maybe is, you know, usually mild tempered, mild mannered, they might be a bit shorter with people. Uh, Professionals often complain of poor sleep quality, feeling consistently tired and exhausted, and um, increasing in isolation, not really feeling like they can take on other people. Uh, sometimes it uh, it presents somatically for, for people. They might start to have, you know, um, GI problems, headaches. And in the more severe cases, a person really starts to experience like an increase in anxiety, depressed mood, losing interest in, in things that they were previously, you know, very interested in. But just kind of a shift in in feeling like themselves. And um, those are some of the common signs of burnout. And I'll talk about also the, the things that lead to burnout. So there's sometimes individual factors that contribute more to burnout and then also external factors. So some of the individual factors like perfectionism and it's, you know, there's probably a high level of perfectionism in the medical field. Right. So because it takes it, there's, you know, there's a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, um, meeting goals and different things that that it takes to become a physician and a medical professional. So some of those perfectionistic tendencies that might have helped a person when they were, you know, um, attaining their goals might be something that's harmful for them because they are very strict on themselves. Um, other internal factors that might lead to burnout, people pleasing, so wanting to you know, make everybody happy, which we know is, isn't possible. Difficulty delegating to other people, so difficulty like accepting help, that can definitely lead to burnout. And um, in terms of external factors, so we have you know, work demands, poor organization at work, um, poor teamwork or just not having the support at work and just not having as a social support in general. So those are some internal and external factors that could, could lead to burnout. What helps is scheduling time for self care. Like I know something that I do is if I put it on my calendar, like if it's not on my calendar, it's not happening. And I feel like that's the same for a lot of people that are extremely busy. If you want something to happen, you really have to schedule time for it. Because if you say, you know, at the end of Tuesday, I'm going to get a massage. If you don't schedule it, then somebody's going to call you or something else might come up and then it just doesn't happen. So you definitely have to put it on your calendar and make sure that it's going to happen. Schedule yourself first just as though you're scheduling a patient. So putting yourself on your own calendar. Again, allowing other people to help you, being able to delegate tasks. Um, So not being able, like I said before, not being able to delegate is something that does increase the likelihood of burnout. So we have to allow ourselves to understand that other people can help us. We're not the end-all be-all. We don't have all the answers. So other people can and will support us if we give them the chance. And of course, you know, we have meditation, mindfulness, and just kind of, you know, being able to be present in the moment and not living too far in the future, too, you know, far in the past and just kind of really being present. Those are some things that can can help decrease the likelihood of of burnout.
0: When mental health impacts our medical professionals,
4: why is it important for them to invest in their well-being? So it is definitely important for medical professionals to invest in their own well-being. As we often hear, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if you are not taking care of yourself, it's really difficult for you to provide assistance, support, um, and anything really meaningful for another person. So you have to be able to um, make time for yourself, not only on vacations, but creating many, I like to create many mindfulness moments throughout the day. So even if it's just two minutes, you know, just two minutes to sit, reflect, breathe, and kind of get yourself re-centered again so that you can be ready and prepared and available to show up for for the people that need you.
0: Well, we want to thank Dr. Smith, Dr. Duvall, Dr. Hutchinson and Mr. Follow for being on this podcast with us today. We also want to thank Be Will PBC for sponsoring this podcast and the entire team at the TV Roy Jefferson Medical Society for coordinating and creating a space for us to help our helpers, and uplift some of the hardest working professionals in the medical field. Whether you are in mental health or focused on physical care, we want you all to be mindful of your self-care. And so we thank you for tuning in today, and we encourage you to share this podcast with others.